0: Good morning. Hey, I want to reiterate what Matt said and welcome you here to New Hope. My name's Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope. And uh, we're just glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, We're going to continue in a series uh, that we're in right now. We're studying through the book of Nehemiah. And so if you open up your Bible, you get to right around the book of Job, go back two books, and you'll be right there in Nehemiah. And we're going to be in chapter 5 this morning. So you can get a Bible, uh, turn your Bible on, open your Bible up, and uh, join us in Nehemiah chapter 5. I also want to reiterate what he said about groups, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go. We kind of hammer that over and over and over again uh, because we believe in it so much. We believe that the best way for you to pursue God is with God's people, and so the best way to do that is in a group. And so you can find out more information about groups right out here in the lobby. Uh, You fill out a blue card. It usually takes a week uh, to two weeks to get you plugged into a group, get you the information. Uh, We've had people signing up every week, and we're just thrilled about that, and so we want to extend that invitation to you as well. Um, hey, as I begin this morning, um, a confession, I do like to watch television. Is anybody bold enough to say, I like TV? Some of you are like, I don't watch TV, I only read books, but you watch TV, right? <laughs> One of the shows that my wife and I really enjoy is the show Fixer Upper. Right? Many of you have watched this show, we've talked about it in here numerous times. I'm kind of drawn to the show because typically my, watch, my wife watches a lot of HGTV and uh, I don't. Um, but this show I do. And when this show comes on, I'm like, yes, and the new season's starting up soon, and we're really excited because it's this show we sit and watch together. I'm drawn uh, to the couple, uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines. Um, And I love the way they interact with each other, and I love how Chip just is goofy and dumb and jumps through walls, and it's awesome. A lot of fun to watch. Uh, But recently I read an article that made me enjoy this show all the more. And the article uh, was in a magazine, and it was an interview with somebody who had their house uh, fixed by Chip and Joanna Gaines. You see, they go into uh, Waco, Texas, or the surrounding towns, and they get with a couple who's getting ready to buy a house, and they usually have a budget, and they usually try to find a house well within that budget so that there's enough to come in and fix up this beat-up house. And so they interviewed a couple a few years after Chip and Joanna had gone in and um, redid the house. And Most of the time when you hear this and you hear these things, you're like, okay, they did it for TV, and you're going to get to kind of see things breaking down. It's not quite what you saw on television, and some of that's true, but but what was fascinating about the article is that this couple pointed out all these things that Chip and Joanna did in their home and how high quality of work they did. See, the article was showing that Chip and Joanna Gaines, they never cut corners. Uh, They didn't take the easy route. They didn't make anything cheap. Everything was high quality and well done. It would last years and years and years. And I don't know about you, but I'm like, yes. You see, they weren't concerned with the fame and the notoriety that they had. They, they didn't start this company that they have with their family in the pursuit of, of fame and fortune. That was an outpouring. That was a byproduct of doing things the right way. You see, they went in and they just said, hey, we're going to be committed to it. No matter what happens... No matter what the outcome, we're going to do things the right way. I love that. You see, that's a quality I'm trying uh, to instill in my kids. I've got three kids and one on the way, and I, I want my kids to understand this truth, uh, that you have to always have integrity. And I don't know about you, but I am drawn to integrity. I'm just drawn in. When I see somebody, not take the easy way out. When they decide, no matter how hard this is, I'm going to do the right thing, I'm going to make the right choice. I love that. I love the way Charles Stanley, a well-known preacher, defines integrity. He says, integrity is always doing the right thing and trusting God with the consequences. So I'm always going to do the right thing, no matter what, no matter how hard it is, no matter how uncomfortable it is, no matter what, I'm going to do the right thing, and I'm going to trust God with the consequences of making that choice, that oftentimes difficult, hard choice, the choice that could have been changed for one that's much easier and provides much more comfort. See, I'm drawn to integrity, and I don't know if you are, but I am. It reminds me of something Oz Guinness once wrote about. Uh, Oz Guinness is a famous writer, and he talked about Jesus uh, and the work that Jesus did. He was quoting a guy named Justin Martyr, and he said uh, about 100 years after the resurrection of Jesus, people were still using the plows and the yokes that Jesus and Joseph had made as carpenters. me think about that a hundred years after the resurrection the very things that jesus and joseph you know jesus started his earthly ministry at 30 years old so for 30 years he worked with joseph he was a carpenter and he would build things and a hundred years after the resurrection they're still using the things that he crafted with his hands because jesus did all things for god's glory i mean even the things that would be insignificant for us Many of us didn't know that, and for many of us, we wouldn't think about that. When we think about Jesus, we don't think about the work he did as a carpenter, because it doesn't really affect us. But Jesus knew that everything that I'm doing should be done as well as I can possibly do it. And while it's easy to cut corners and easy to take the easy route and it's easy to choose comfort and pleasure, oftentimes it's really difficult to just say, I'm going to do the right thing no matter what, no matter how long it takes and how hard it is, I'm going to do the right thing, and I'm going to trust God with the consequences of me choosing to do the right thing. I, am, I love that quality. I'm not always perfect with it. Uh, ask my wife. But what I do love is when presented with a difficult situation or decision, I love watching leaders do the right thing and trust God with the consequences of that decision. Now, this is the lesson we're going to learn as we continue this series in the book of Nehemiah. As we flip over to chapter 5, Nehemiah is going to be faced with a very difficult decision, a decision that he could have easily avoided, he could have easily ignored, but he didn't. You see, in chapters 1 and 2, we saw that Nehemiah was a man of prayer and Bible study who didn't just pray and study the Bible. He took action. Right? He took action to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. His people had been taken into exile, and they'd been returned from exile, but their entire city was destroyed. And Nehemiah said, that's unacceptable. I'm going to do the hard thing. Well what could have been easy to stay in the palace and be the cupbearer, he made a decision. And I'm actually going to go and I'm going to lead the people to rebuild the walls and rebuild our city. And that's what he does. He pursues this big project. And in chapters 3 and 4, you see him kind of leading with all this valor. And it's an incredible task. And people coming from the outside, right? God's people are rebuilding these walls. And all these outside people don't want this to happen. And they begin to attack verbally and try to try to do as much as they can to discourage the work. And Nehemiah leads through that opposition in chapters 3 and 4. And now we get to chapter 5, and the the obstacle he's up against is not from the outside, but kind of arises from the inside. And it's one that is going to require, it's going to test his integrity. And it all starts with people crying out for help. So we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish Jewish brothers. Now, I'm going to pause there because this word outcry is pretty pretty key. that They're crying out. Jewish people crying out against other Jewish people. So right away you know, uh-oh, we've got a problem. We've got this big project that we have to do and now our people are starting to have conflict with one another. This is an issue. And they're crying out for help. Uh, crying out for help. Let me, let me help you understand. This little Hebrew word appears throughout the Old Testament uh, that means outcry. It's like a 911 call from your heart. I don't know if you've ever had to call 911. There's a few times in my life where I've actually had to do that. It's a very scary situation, and it usually comes when you're on the scene and you realize there is nothing I can do to fix what I'm encountering right now. I'm helpless. There, nothing within my power can change this situation. And so you cry out for help. You, you call 911. You're screaming for help. This is the situation these people find themselves in. They've come to the end, end of their ropes, They have no choice. They can't do anything within their power. They're going to cry for help. See, this word appears throughout your Old Testament in stories like when when the Egyptians are um, under bondage. Leading into the book of Exodus, Uh, the the Egyptians are holding the Israelites under bondage. And they're enslaving them. And at some point, uh, the Israelites can't take it anymore. And this word appears. There's an outcry. God, help us. And Moses leads them out of that captivity. And Moses himself would use that word, that very same concept of crying out for help. I'm in desperation, God. When he goes up onto Mount Sinai, in your Old Testament, Moses would go up onto Mount Sinai and receive the Ten Commandments. But when he was doing that, when he was with God, the people are running astray. And they start chasing after other things. And he comes down from this mountain, and that word appears again. And in a a moment of desperation, Moses cries out to God, I'm at the end of my rope with these people. I don't know what to do. It's, it's King David later on in your Old Testament running from Saul and having all of his enemies pressing in on him, and he gets to this point of desperation. I don't know what else I can do here. I don't know anything else within my power that can change this situation, so he's left with no choice but to cry out for help. Have you ever been there? You just kind of feel like I've got nothing left. I need to, I'm just crying out in desperation. What's fascinating about this instance is that it was the women that were crying out for help. The women, they got to this point, and it's not even just the men. The women come to the edge of the city gates, which was usually the job of the men to cry out for help, and they're just screaming and crying out for help. We can't take this anymore. And Nehemiah continues to tell us, what is it that got them to that point of desperation? Because they've been rebuilding the wall. It doesn't seem like it's been that long, and yet it had to have, some time had to have passed. Not a lot of time, but they're at this edge of desperation. And Nehemiah says, here's what was making these people lose their minds in verse 2. There were those who said, With our sons and our daughters, we're many. We have a lot of people, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. But there were also those who said, We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We've borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children, are as their children. Yet... We're, faced, we're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it. You see, they're powerless. It, we're, we're, there's no power to help the situation. Men have our fields and our vineyards. So now you have this interesting situation that Nehemiah is going to have to lead through. You have this wall that needs to be built. They've been commissioned to build, so they're building the wall. But what happens is these people that would work their fields have stopped working their fields and and their vineyards to come over and build this wall. Now when they're building the wall, the very source of their income and livelihood was to work the fields. And so now you have really wealthy Jewish people who, in all of their money, come up with a very selfish plan. You can keep rebuilding the wall, and you can mortgage your fields and vineyards to us, and we'll charge you interest. And so then you pay interest, and you'll be able to build the wall, and we'll be able to take care of you, right? Seems to make sense to them. The problem was they didn't have the income to pay the interest. So now what are they left to? They start mortgaging off their children. Well, we'll build the wall and you take our kids and our kids will be your slaves. And so they have no choice and they're sending off their children. It's this deplorable situation. And they have all these different concerns now that Nehemiah is faced with. He's concerned with the inability of the poor Jewish people to work the land and provide for themselves. The way that The work on the wall is going to suffer if they leave that behind and go start taking care of their land again. Now we can't rebuild the walls. What are we going to do with that? The mounting financial burden of mortgaging the fields and the vineyards and borrowing to pay the king's taxes on mortgage land. So these people are just in a financial burden and a devastating effect of selling one's own children in slavery at this point to work so that they can provide for their families. And Nehemiah says, When I stopped and didn't just hear them crying out, but listened to why they were crying out. Listened to why they were being oppressed. Here's what it does to him, Verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, You're exacting interest, each, uh, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly. So he gathers them together, and he said to them, We, as far as we are able have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. So Nehemiah is furious. He says, are you kidding me? We've got this big project to do, and you wealthy people are exploiting your very own people in order to get more wealthy than you already were. And he he starts to get angry, and he gathers them all together, and in his anger explains the situation to him. He kind of lays it out for him. And Nehemiah, the reason he was angry was he began to feel empathy. You see, Nehemiah himself was wealthy. We're going to learn about that. He was one of the wealthy ones. So what is it that did something in his heart to make him stop and consider those who were less fortunate than him? He felt empathy. I love uh, Brene Brown's definition of empathy. She says this, Empathy is pressing pause on your own thoughts and feelings long enough to explore someone else's thoughts and feelings. So Nehemiah, his thoughts and feelings were, I've got to finish this project. I've got to lead. I've got to worry about opposition from the outside. But he pauses on those feelings, and he listens to the crying out of these people who are being oppressed, these people who are being mistreated. Long enough to explore their feelings, he understands this is not cool, and he begins to call it out in front of all the people. But here's another fascinating thing. This term, uh, when, when Nehemiah says that he took counsel with himself, it's this idea of uh, putting himself... Uh, under authority that's what it that's what it means i i i guarded my heart or i put my heart under authority is what that means see nehemiah was angry and there was nothing wrong with his anger i hope you understand that the bible doesn't tell us to never be angry god's word gives us permission to be angry when we look at a situation and we realize people are being treated with injustice that should make us angry we should feel anger about that the difference is what do we do with the anger Nehemiah pauses and he puts his heart under authority. Under what authority? Under the Word of God. We see that pattern in his life up to this point. So he pauses in his anger. Now, let me be honest, I'm not always good at that. In this season in our country, it's hard, right? It's hard to watch a debate, it's hard to turn on the television and not get frustrated and angry about all the things you're hearing, all the things you're. And, and our tendency is to get really fired up and angry and just kind of leave it there at that emotional state. That's not what Nehemiah does. He gets emotional, he gets frustrated, he gets angry, and then he stops and pauses before he takes action, before he opens his mouth, before he says things to people, before he does something he shouldn't do. See, I think a lot of people on social media would really benefit from his approach. I really do. I think a lot of us would benefit from maybe taking a season away from that. We get fired up and angry, and we just start going in our emotional state. And I don't know about you, I've just never seen somebody change their mind because of the post, the emotional angry post someone else put on social media. And Nehemiah knows this idea, no one's going to change their mind. I can't bring about change just sitting here being angry. And so he pauses. Why am I angry? Why am I feeling so upset? And he takes his heart under the control of God's word. He takes, and now his anger becomes a righteous anger. He didn't lash out. He didn't start planning to punish people. He didn't come in the midst of his anger and say things he shouldn't have said. And he, he no, know, immediately he goes to the leadership. He gathers the leadership. He has the entire context of the situation before he does anything. And he addresses that leadership with clarity and such clarity. They had nothing to say to him in response. That kind of clarity doesn't come in an emotional outburst. It's just not possible. You don't burst out in your emotion and in your anger and leave people without the ability to defend themselves and respond to you no he gathered himself and spoke with clarity and then in speaking with clarity he was able to get them to understand "Uh uh-oh uh-oh look what we're doing nehemiah continues in in his explanation as he explains to them the solution so he says here's here's what's going on here's what we need to do he says then i said what you're doing isn't right Shouldn't you walk in fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Let us stop charging this interest. So, after he gets his heart ruled by the authority of God, he clarifies what's going on. He then begins to tell them this needs to stop. Because these wealthy people are only looking out for themselves and trying to get richer. And, and, and they're trying to, hey, this is good business practice. No big deal. Everything's working. We're going to make money. We're going to get wealthy. The wall will get rebuilt. Every, but it's hurting people and oppressing them. And he stops them and says, you can't do this anymore. You can't do that. You've got to stop. Shouldn't you fear God? We've got to stop just lending them money for interest. So he kind of proposes two things. You can lend them with no interest Or I think he's even saying of himself, I've been lending them grain and all these other things and expecting a payment back because a loan expects a repayment. He says, I think times like this maybe call for a gift and not even a loan. I think we should be generous and make sure everybody's taken care of so that we can accomplish this great work for God. Verse 11, so he says to them, In response to this, he says, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. That's a big deal. That's a lot of money. You translate that to our economy, that is a lot of money to return to people. And these wealthy people, what in the world would convince them after making that kind of money to return the money? And I can only think of one thing. It was the word of God clarified by Nehemiah. This is not, God does not allow us to charge interest to one another. It was forbidden in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. You're not allowed to charge interest to one another. Let's get back to obeying what God said. I think he's reminding them, leaders, those following our God, always do the right thing and they trust God with the consequences. He reminds them of this truth, says return all of these things. In verse 12, and their response, we will restore these And we're going to require nothing from them. We're going to do as you say. But Nehemiah's smart. He's real smart. He knows that simply making a commitment is a whole lot easier than following through on that commitment. Right? See, in our groups, we sit around here at New Hope and we make commitments to obey the Lord based on the text that we're studying. And it's it's always an encouraging thing. But without that accountability to actually follow through, it's just a vain commitment. It's just lip service. It's political. Yep. Yeah, we'll return it. Yep, we'll come up with policies, and we'll figure that out. And Nehemiah says, no, I don't know. I think you might commit to it, and then I think our enemy's going to try to distract you again from the commitment that you made. And so he kind of reinforces it. This is what he says. And I called the priests, and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment. So he's actually giving them a visual demonstration that they can look back on and remember, "Uh uh-oh, if we don't follow through on this, remember what Nehemiah said. So may God shake out every man from, from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. You know, you're thinking bully in, in elementary school, right? All the images, shake them out, let all the money fall. This is what's going to happen to you if you don't follow through and do what you just committed to doing. All the assembly said, Amen, or essentially they're saying, Yes, we agree. That's what Amen means. That's why you guys should be saying that more often while I'm preaching. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and they praised the Lord. It took you a second. You're with me, though. And there you go. There we go. And the people did as they had promised. Look, I can say that I'm going to do something. I can look at that uh, integrity quote that Charles Stanley um, puts in front of us and do the right thing and trust God with the consequences. I can say, I'm always going to do the right thing. I'm going to be financially responsible. I'm going to be loyal to my spouse. I'm going to raise my kids right. I'm going to always do the right thing. And it's one thing to commit to it. It's a whole other thing to follow through. And friends, we're up against an enemy that wants nothing more than to distract us from the commitments that we make. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, this was pointed out to me this week, uh, describes Satan as the craftiest creature. He's crafty. He's not just this Halloween figure that scares us. He's very slick. He's very intelligent. He knows exactly how to play you. He knows exactly how to come between you and your commitment and your follow-through. And he can just kind of sit there and keep you from the world of commitment and the world of follow through. And this is the fear Nehemiah had. We can say we're going to do the right thing, but we have to have accountability. Without accountability, we're left to our own strength. And it's obvious, based on the problem that Nehemiah was dealing with, that left to their own strength, it's selfishness. It's seeking financial gain. It's seeking pleasure. It's seeking me first. But with accountability in place, with a direction leading you toward the word of God, that and only that are going to get you to that next step. So there's a couple things I learned when I'm reading this chapter that I want to point out to you. A couple lessons that we can learn that you can kind of take with you. Here's one. The best way to gauge your integrity, so that whether or not you're always doing the right thing and trusting God with the consequences, the best way for you to gauge that is God's word and God's people. You see, Nehemiah's conviction continue, it came directly from God's word. He understood what God had said about charging interest between uh, the people of God. You're not allowed to do it. So when he finds out that this is what's happening, that we're not just lending our, other, our, our fellow countrymen items and, and goods and services. We're not just lending them to them interest-free. We're charging interest. He had a filter. You see, He had a filter to understand what the right thing and what the wrong thing is. We, we might say, I might dare to say, that without the Word of God, because I believe so much in the Word of God, you cannot have integrity. Because God's standard is the only standard for morally acceptable decisions. It's the basis of all morality. And so what is your filter when faced with a situation when you have to decide, is this the right thing or the wrong thing? Do you rely on your own feelings and emotions? Or do you have a filter of understanding God's word? And so my next question to you to kind of live this principle out is this, are you spending time in the word of God? Are you spending time with the people of God who can help you understand the word of God and keep you on track? I'm going to introduce you to a resource. It's called the Read Scripture app. and We've been kind of promoting it around here quite a while. I've got it on my phone. It comes You can get the app on your phone. You're like, I don't do that. You can get it on the Internet. And if you don't want it on the Internet, we'll print out the plan for you. We'll print out the plan for you. It's a really fascinating tool uh, with, this, with this app. You open it up, and, and you're kind of going through a reading plan. And you're reading multiple chapters of Scripture each day, but it really is fascinating how much you get into it. And at the beginning of each book of the Bible, there's a video, a very engaging video that gives you the whole context of the book you're about to read. So you kind of watch this video, and then you begin to read each day through the book that you just came to understand through the teaching of that video. And here's why I want to propose it to all of you, because you might be saying, I have my own reading plan. I read by myself. I take no advice. Leave me alone. I will do what I want. That's fine. Keep doing it. But for the rest of us that are interested, what would it look like for an entire church to be reading the same scriptures? all week long. What would it look like for you and your group to be reading and holding each other accountable to reading God's word so that the next time you're faced with a decision that you have to make in your personal life, whether it's financial or it's with your marriage or with your parenting, the very filter that you make that decision through is the word of God that you've been spending time in, day in and day out, being held accountable to by your brothers and sisters in your group. That is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah came and said, This isn't lining up with what God taught. People, let me remind you what our God has said in his word. He brings them back to that truth, and they're like, whoa, you're right, we're going to do this. And he said, I want to make sure you're going to do this. And to keep us on track, we have to hold one another accountable. And so he said, remember this. I want to help hold you accountable. Real change, real gospel-centered change comes from God's word and God's people. The second lesson I learned when I'm reading through this this chapter is this. Your integrity is not tested in your comfort or the good times. The test of your integrity comes when and where you least expect it. So Your integrity is not going to be tested when things are going good. I, lo- I love sports. I'm a big sports fan. In fact, my team lost by one because they missed an extra kick. 72 consecutive extra kicks, and you missed the most important one. But anyway, <laughs> they lost last night, and it doesn't bother me, right? Uh, but... Anyway, uh, I love watching sports. But what's fascinating to me is these athletes that they'll they'll come into the end zone and they'll give God all the credit and they'll talk about God when the times are good. But when the times get rough, where's God? When you don't catch the ball and when you miss the kick, where's God? Where's God? Well, let me ask you. When your integrity is tested, not in your good times, it's easy. It's easy to be around God's people and God's church at church events it's easy when, when things are going really well, but what happens when you don't agree with the political statements of certain candidates for your president? What happens for you in, in responding to financial difficulty when things are strapped and it doesn't look like we're going to pay the bills, but we made this commitment to this initiative at our church? And what happens when finances get tight and you're like, but I, I committed to tithing? And this is a commitment that we made as a church or as a family to our church. Are we going to follow through with that? What happens when temptation comes your way? Students, let me ask you this. I want to ask students. It's one thing to live like a Christian when you're around Christian friends. What happens when you're alone with a boyfriend or girlfriend and the pressure is applied to compromise your sexual integrity? What happens, students and everyone else, when you're home alone and no one's going to be home for a while and the computer's right there and the temptation to look at pornography comes? What happens when you can make a lot of money by just taking this one little shortcut and it's not that bad and not that big of a deal? What happens when the pressure's applied to make that decision in your life? What happens when you get home and you're tired and you've had a long day and a rough week and your kids want to play and hang out and your wife just wants someone to talk to you, right? What happens in those moments? Because that's when our enemy, that's when our enemy brings his A game and he applies that pressure to you and your integrity is going to be tested. And the question that's going to be asked of you is, will you do the right thing and trust God with the consequences of that decision? Nehemiah did. See, Nehemiah, Nehemiah didn't expect the opposition from the inside. He was fully prepared for uh, Sanballat and Tobiah coming at him from the outside like they did in chapter 4, and he's fully prepared for that. And he's not expecting the opposition to come from the inside. But that's how Satan works. He hits us where we don't expect it, when we don't expect it. And in those moments, our integrity, our character will be put on the line. And Nehemiah looks at that when it's the most difficult moment. Why is this happening? God, I'm doing all of this good for you. Why would this, what is going on here? And he allows his heart to be calmed down by the word of God. And he explains with clarity God's plan. And then puts a system of accountability to hold God's people to God's plan, to fulfill God's promises. To rebuild that wall. What about you? Because God has a plan for your family. And God has a plan for your business. And God has a plan for your friendships. And God has a plan for your purity. But when that's tested, will you prove to have integrity that honors him? The third lesson that I learned is this. When we invite, or when we live with integrity, we free ourselves to enjoy the blessings of God. When we live with this integrity, when it is a chief goal of our life to have integrity, we are free to enjoy God's blessings like never before. Nehemiah experienced this. Look at verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be the governor of the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration 40 shekels of silver, Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of my fear of God. I also preserved in the work of this wall, and we acquired no land, and all of my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came from the neighboring nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense, out of my pocket, for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because this service was too heavy on the people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for his people. Listen, this is fascinating to me. Many times we think that living this Christian life means denying pleasure and denying enjoyment. That is so far from the truth nehemiah was not poor nehemiah was not wealthy and denied his wealth to the point where he suffered that wasn't him nehemiah was very wealthy read if you just read what we just at his own expense every day he's providing a spread of food that was unbelievable for over 150 people not only that he had an abundance of choice wine for them to engage in and it didn't even hurt the bank account every day he did this for 12 years Every day he serves people. And every day he enjoyed it. The point of following God with integrity is not to deny joy, is not to deny the pleasures that he offers us. It is, it is to allow him to be the Lord of your heart, to free you up, to enjoy the blessings that he pours down on you. See, Nehemiah, in the midst of all of this difficulty, still had it pretty good. He could have had it better. He could have taken that, imagine that 40 shekels of silver from each person, each debt, he could have taken all of that from the people, but he chose not to. And he said, my motivation for that was God. I loved God, and I wasn't going to go for my own advantage at the expense of other people. He had empathy. He paused and said, as much as I'd like to build wealth, as much as I'd like to have more, this is going to hurt people, so I'm not going to do it. And he stepped back and said, I'm not going to build more. And in the midst of that, Denial of self-pleasure. God poured out blessings on him, and he experienced a lot of abundance that he was also generous with. Look, you don't have to apologize for God having blessed you financially. You just have to be careful because finances can compromise integrity so quickly. Do you have the eyes of generosity to bless the people of God through the work of the church and the advancement of the gospel in this world? It's one of the chief goals of the blessings God's poured out on your life, you know, to, to bless other people through the work of the church in this world. That's God's plan A, It's the church. It's his plan A. He wants to work through the church to advance the gospel in this community, in this state, in this country, and in this world. And he is working after it. And he's invited you to be a part of it and on different levels of financial blessing. And you don't have to feel bad about that. And you don't have to feel bad about not, not just being generous with your money, but also enjoying what God has blessed you with. You don't have to feel bad. Look, saying that that's bad is like saying a sunset shouldn't be enjoyed. That's a blessing from God, too. Uh, The way I read it this week was tall people shouldn't have to apologize for being tall. That's a blessing. Enjoy being tall, right? The same thing. Financially blessed people shouldn't have to apologize for being financially blessed. They just shouldn't. People that are married and have a good marriage shouldn't have to feel bad about having a good marriage. People with children that are growing up and and doing well shouldn't have to feel bad about that. Instead, they should pause and just thank God for it. You see, when when we pursue integrity, when I pursue being the dad that God wants me to be, I have nights like I did last night. It was conviction, though. Many of you might be expecting me to say, I went home and we just had the greatest night ever. No, I stayed at the church because I had a really bad week. a really bad week this week. One of the worst I've had in my entire ministry. Because of it, I couldn't finish this sermon. So my kids wanted to go bowling yesterday. The sermon wasn't done. So I didn't go bowling with them. I got home, and I'm thinking, what is it that brings me the greatest joy? And it may not be the same for you, but I'm not sorry for it being what it is for me. God has blessed me with an incredible wife and kids. I have an incredible marriage, and I have incredible children, and I love it, and I'm grateful to him for it. But there are times I need to be reminded not to take it for granted and to filter them through the lens of the gospel. And so guess what we're doing today? We're going bowling. Anyone want to come? Kidding, you're not invited. Uh, <laughs> but Nehemiah didn't have to apologize for the blessings of God. He just needed to be willing to use them for God. And in the midst of doing that with integrity, he got to enjoy them all the more. Say all this. Let me, let me ask you this. Imagine this for a minute. You can close your eyes if you want. Just kind of think about it. What would it look like? If from this day on, you and your family began to make every decision in an effort to always do the right thing and trust God with the consequences, how would that change your marriage? If, if happiness and feelings were no longer your motivation, but instead it was doing the right thing for your spouse, what would it look like as you raise your children? If raising morally upright, successful kids was no longer your motivation, but doing the right thing for your children was your motivation? What would it look like for your bank account? What would it look like for this church if we had an entire group of people that just said from now on, from this moment on, we are committed to always doing the right thing. and We're just going to trust God with the consequences of those decisions. You just imagine the impact it would have on your family, the impact it would have on your parenting, your marriage, and this church and in this community if we stopped like Nehemiah did and we just decided from now on I'm going to be a person very simply who always does the right thing And trust God with the consequences. Let's pray.